0: Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our June 17th, 2010 edition of the show, 4.07 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, got a couple quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at kuci.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. There were always a few things about the 2001 anthrax attacks that were odd. Whereas we were told by officialdom within hours of the September 11th World Trade Center attacks that it was the work of Al-Qaeda, we were told that there were no suspects for these subsequent germ attacks. Then we were told there was a person of interest who later turned out to be innocent. Then we were told about seven years later that the culprit was known, but he was dead and unable to defend himself. And for most of that intervening seven years, the news media seemed not too interested. And it was almost as if the bioterrorist killings never occurred. And now that we've been told that the crime's been solved, we're supposed to forget about it. Not so fast. There's still a hell of a lot about this that doesn't add up. Staring Down That Void is a recent documentary and book called Anthrax War. Our special guests today are the men behind it. Bob Cohen and Eric Nadler. Bob is a filmmaker and award-winning journalist whose films have been broadcast on CNN International, National Geographic, and PBS. Eric is an author, television producer, and award-winning filmmaker who has produced several PBS Frontline programs. Bob and Eric, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Great
1: to be with you, Robin.
0: Yeah, it's really good to have you. I have uh, been so curious about this for so long and uh, really uh, just uh, a little bit disturbed by what I've been told and not been told, and now I'm a little bit more disturbed. Uh, what, why was it that you uh, set out to make this film? Was it that, like me, you were frustrated why, uh, by what we were being told or rather not told by the government and news media?
1: Well, for, for me, Robert, I, I grew up in Africa, in Zimbabwe, and I came of age at the time of a bloody race war uh, that was going on in that country. And um, I, I became aware of the use of biological agents during that war, and in fact the largest outbreak of anthrax took place in my home country in 1978. There were 10,000 cases, almost 300 people died. Um, Very few people know about this outbreak, but I was always fascinated by it, and and my work as a journalist, I picked up bits and pieces about the use of biological agents in war in Southern Africa, in my home country, and by the South South African regime in the various wars that were raging in Southern Africa. Um, I never really did anything with that information. I basically picked up bits and pieces, but I left... Africa for New York and arrived in the city just after 9-11, just as those anthrax attacks were happening. And I was struck by, you know, what had happened in my country. And I began to wonder, might there be a connection between these two events? And that's what began um, my journey down this uh, rabbit hole um, of the anthrax attacks. And I met my old friend Eric, great investigative journalist and uh, we decided to join forces and start looking into this thing because it did not make sense.
0: Yeah, I, I was just always, you, you know, there was about that seven-year period that it seemed like what we were being told there was nothing going on. The the trail was cold, and and you know, how could this be? You would think the full force of uh, American uh, law enforcement and government would be on this, and that we were, uh, you know, just and it was. For, it just seemed like for years the news media just didn't even talk about it. And I, I just found that so bizarre, and it, it really seemed to me like, well, just forget that ever happened.
2: Yeah, Yeah. it, it, yeah, it, it was the, the second punch, in the one-two punch against the Republic, uh, the 9-11 events and then the anthrax attacks. And it was a pretty good attack because um, it, the powder came through the mail, uh, the people that killed uh, were seemingly random, a grandmother in Connecticut, a nurse in the, in the Bronx, uh, a photo editor in Florida. It could have been anybody and anything who uh, got mail. And uh, basically what interested me is that the uh, FBI immediately uh, decided uh, that it was the work of a lone gunman. This is uh, what the FBI uh, generally uh, does. Um, They don't like to look for conspiracy in these things, and so it's going to be one uh, crazy guy. But there was only one fly in the uh, ointment there. Uh, The uh, powder that was actually used in in the attacks, especially the uh, powder in the envelopes that were sent to the uh, U.S. Capitol, to the offices of uh, Senator Tom Daschle and Senator Patrick Leahy, um they did the US Army did the analysis of the powders and found that the anthrax was the most sophisticated uh, anthrax uh, powder uh, ever uh, discovered and it didn't occur naturally uh, this powder had to be uh, ground down milled down to uh, infinitesimal size so that it would be uh, able to be uh, an aerosol and uh, basically breathed into um, your lungs and become an effective uh, killer. When U.S. Army scientists went uh, uh, to put the powder from the Leahy letter under a microscope, uh, the powder floated into the air; it wouldn't stay still. They hadn't seen anything like it, and they they did analysis and they discovered that there were additives uh, put in there to uh, to make it more um, dispersible. So this was a very sophisticated anthrax powder. And then by trying to lay it on a lone operator, the question then became, could a lone uh, person either have access or manufacture this powder? And uh, that became the key question. And uh, the answer as far as uh, we're able to determine, and we're not alone in this, is that it would take a rather sophisticated multidisciplinary effort uh, to get that powder and that the the desire to put this on a lone operator like a Lee Harvey Oswald type or James Earl Ray or Sirhan Sirhan nice and tidy um, ran counter to the evidence and they went after one guy and they had to admit they were wrong and then five months after they admitted they were wrong uh, they announced yeah we got the right guy who did it all by himself but he just killed himself and so they never would have to present evidence in court Evidence they 've released to date is a very, very weak case against this uh, fellow
0: yeah so it 's very convenient for anybody who may have something they want to cover up uh, because it 's like we 're told that it 's case closed and uh, so so you do this quite well by interviewing different experts in the film and uh, who say that that is really. <laughs> Darn near impossible that that Bruce Ivins could have pulled this off by himself, and so and and you talk about how sophisticated this anthrax was. You know, this weaponized anthrax only could have been made in a very sophisticated lab with a lot of. Uh, uh, financial backing behind it, and a uh, we would assume a, a large government, uh, so not, not some small country or small um, terrorist organization wouldn't seem to have the resources to do this. And, and then we're also, this is also what we call the AIM strain, right? is that correct? What was used in the attacks? Yeah, they
1: identified it as, as the AIM strain, which was a, a strain of anthrax that was specifically designed by the U.S. military um, as part of their uh, weapons and vaccine work. Um, so, and, and, and that was one of the signatures that, uh, you know, that, the, that that was the AIM strain developed by the U.S. But the U.S. had also shared that AIM strain with a number of different countries that had gone around the world. And that's one thing that we basically um, uncovered in this uh, film, is that this uh, world, this secret world of germ warfare, um, it sort of has its tentacles all around the world. Um, there are secret labs around the world that have been conducting this um, classified research for decades now. And so one of the things that we did in this film is start examining uh, you know, the the legacy of not only this research but what has happened since um, the anthrax attacks. And one of the scariest things is that what used to be the domain of secret government programs has now been privatized. So you've got now private companies that are um, investing in, in research and development of um, all kinds of new agents using genetic engineering, and we don't know what's going on in the labs. And so we take this journey into a lot of these most top-secret labs um, here in the United States, across um, in Europe, port and down, place in England. We went to Russia. We went all the way to South Africa following this trail of anthrax.
0: And so you said, yeah, the AIM strain, but yet this was given out to different people, uh, different governments, different uh, private organizations. So being that it was the AIM strain, that led a lot of uh, sort of conspiracy theorists to uh, jump to the idea that this is somehow an inside job. but being that, as you said, it went uh, to several different governments, it's been in private hands, and we its we don't know if it was passed on to anyone else beyond that. It makes it uh, a really frightening situation, and even if uh, our government wasn't directly responsible for this, it's in a, in a certain sense indirectly, and in that it allow, allowed it to get into so many hands. Would that be a correct assumption?
2: I think so. I think you're absolutely right on that. And One of the uh, more shocking things we discovered, among many shocking things, was that the U.S. government control and oversight uh, of the inventory of uh, these deadly pathogens, these select agents, anthrax is just one, Ebola virus, Marburg virus, uh, 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 tularemia, all kinds of uh, horrors um, that the government supposedly is on top of and you can trust them. Uh, They have a horrible safety record that's been uh, criticized by the uh, government uh, accounting office and official reports. Uh, There have been uh, anthrax uh, spillages, uh, packages of select agents were mailed to FedEx and lost. After Bruce Ivins, uh, who worked at the uh, U.S. Army's uh, biggest facility of uh, germ uh, defense uh, in Fort Detrick in Maryland, Um, They discovered that inventory controls were so bad that they had 6,000 more vials of uh, deadly pathogens than they thought they had. Um, Once you make an error, uh, once you err on the side of uh, too little, I mean, they found 6,000 more. Who knows where another 2,000 went? I mean, the fact that uh, they are trading in this material for years, it was given to the British scientists. Um, There are even some cases in the uh, early 1990s where it was discovered uh, anthrax was sent to uh, Cuba, Uh, anthrax was sent to um, uh, South Africa, anthrax was sent to uh, Iraq, uh, even. I mean, the genesis of the Saddam Hussein Program uh, such as it was, and he did have a vigorous program at least during uh, the lead up to the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. But they went in the next time they didn't find anything. But Saddam was very interested in germ war, and uh, he got beginning stocks from uh, from the United States for research purposes. But who really knows uh, why the that material was traded? It's just shocking that uh, this material is proliferating. There are more high security labs being uh, built. The U.S. is undergoing the largest expansion in the military history, uh, doubling the size of its uh, super um, uh, containment uh, laboratories, all ostensibly to work for vaccines and biodefense purposes. But if you're sitting, I don't know, in uh, Tehran or um, Beijing or uh, Moscow, and uh, you see this frenetic activity in terms of uh, defense, biodefense, and you know that the research is such, it all has dual-use implications, that offensive research and defensive research in biology are often one and the same, mm-hmm. you can have legitimate questions about what's really happening uh, here. And while we don't know who actually uh, did the anthrax attacks, and uh, we argue it wasn't Bruce Ivins, or if it was him, it was certainly wasn't him acting alone, we know that the real legacy of the attacks has been uh, $70 billion dollars Uh, generated by the US government for biosecurity, which was uh, fueled by the terror and panic instilled in us by whoever put that anthrax in the mail. So I don't know the hand that put it in there, but I certainly know the hands that are uh, making uh, good profits today because of those events.
0: Yeah that and that is uh, a uh, something that should be looked at. Uh this is out the rabbit hole KUCI in Irvine Robert Larson here speaking with Eric Nadler and Bob Cohen. Uh they are uh, responsible for an amazing new uh documentary called Anthrax War subtitle The Untold Story of the 2001 Anthrax Attacks and the Dark Secrets of the Hidden World of Modern-Day Germ War Research. And then there's also a book, Anthrax War, subtitled Dead Silence, Fear and Terror on the Anthrax Trail. Uh, One of the most alarming and disturbing revelations in Anthrax War is the uh, long list of biowarfare scientists with high level inside information who have died under mysterious or suspicious circumstances with uh, David Kelly being the most prominent uh, can you go into that a little bit
1: yeah i mean if you if you google dead scientists you know you come up with um, lots and lots of websites at least scores of scientists, Uh, some of the lists go into the hundreds of uh, scientists who have been killed in mysterious circumstances since uh, 9-11. But we decided to take a close look at five cases in our film, including Bruce Ivins. Uh, Bruce Ivins was just the latest uh, scientist who was working with anthrax to... uh, to die. The, the the guy that you mentioned, uh, Dr. David Kelly, was uh, probably the most uh, famous uh, of the other. Um, when and he was a British arms inspector, and probably the world's leading expert uh, on germ warfare. He worked for the British government at their uh, secret uh, lab, Porton Down. He was also an arms inspector. Um, he was responsible for um, inspecting the Soviet. Um, germ warfare program that had a vast secret program that was exposed in the early 90s Kelly was the man who went and inspected those um, he was also the top a weapons inspector in Iraq responsible for making sure that Saddam Hussein destroyed his uh, his stocks of germ weapons in any event um, just following the uh, invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003 by uh, British and um, American forces. Um, uh, the, the British press had, had leaked um, a, a name was uh, w- was uh, leaked that said that uh, an official of the British government had said that the evidence used um, by the British government um, um, in in in, in, their, in their rush to war that Saddam Hussein had um, capability, germ warfare capability, to hit. Um, uh, the Europe in 45 Minutes, was sexed up, so to speak, and that Kelly was the person who was uh, actually named. And he was brought before um, Parliament. There was a huge scandal. He was questioned. But then he, just a few days later, he uh, turns up dead in the woods from apparent suicide, took a walk in the countryside, and slid his wrists. And uh, it was a huge scandal in the British um, Uh, in in Britain at the time. And in our film, we we basically examine um, who David Kelly was and what his role was in this uh, this world of germ warfare. And we find that he was um, involved in all sorts of activities, including uh, possible human experiments at Porton Down, and had connections with uh, the South African germ warfare program um, during the apartheid years, a project called Project Coast, Mm -hmm. that was involved in developing an ethnic germ weapon. So we found that that there were a lot of inconsistencies in uh, David Kelly's death. Um, uh, There were were, uh, forensic um, inconsistencies. There were no fingerprints found on the knife that he supposedly committed suicide uh, with. Um, And his death is just one of um, another uh, four deaths that we've also looked into, like... uh, uh, Larry Ford, uh, who was actually based in uh, your neck of the woods in Irvine.
0: Yeah, right um, here. Right. And, yeah, so you, yeah, you talk about uh, 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 David Kelly and Bruce Ivins, who uh, uh, appears to c- have committed suicide, but it's very convenient for anybody who doesn't want us to look into this further. And you, you talk about, uh, and we're going to get into Larry Ford in a minute, and you talk about um, the uh, Russian uh, fellow. Uh, Vasnetsov.
1: Vladimir Pasechnik. That's right, Vladimir Pasechnik, who was actually one of the top scientists of the Soviet program, and uh, he defected in 1989. It was thanks to Pasechnik that uh, the West got to know about this huge illegal program that the Soviets had, uh, where they had thousands and thousands of scientists working on uh, weaponizing of some of the most dangerous uh, of substances, like uh, Marburg virus and. Anyway, Posechnik defected, and he spilled the beans on what the Soviets were really doing, which uh, basically uh, allowed the West to put pressure on uh, the Soviets and shut down that program uh, just around the same time the Soviet Union was collapsing. But after he defected, he was debriefed by David Kelly and actually goes on to work with him at Portendown. They set up a private company for this guy, and he's working on an anthrax antidote, and then just uh, just after the anthrax attacks, uh, Pasecznik died very suddenly of a suspected stroke, but um, lots of uh, suspicions that uh,
2: there was something more to his death. Now, on the dead scientist, I'd just like to make a point. Um, uh, Bruce Ivins, dead uh, by an overdose of Tylenol, the official story, no autopsy. Uh, David Kelly, Uh, Dead by suicide, by a knife, uh, no fingerprints, no autopsy. Vladimir Pesesnik died of a stroke, no autopsy. Um, The British government uh, was uh, besieged by a request by uh, prominent uh, physicians in uh, England saying we want to see the uh, autopsy records, and the uh, British government... Uh, lord, who was in charge of the investigation into the matter, sealed the records for 70 years. Uh, wow. my, my lord, what are they trying to hide there? <laughs> and as far as as far as Bruce Ivins go, here you have a guy that the government says uh, is a, a U.S. Army uh, scientist, uh, supposedly had the highest security clearance, which I'm sure he did, but he becomes uh, unstable and then commits. Uh, a serial murder, which which sparks international panic, and uh, he takes some pills, and then five days later he dies in the hospital, and they don't do an autopsy? I mean, uh, let's get real here.
0: Yeah, so uh, before we get into Larry Ford, so there's uh, David Kelly... Bruce Ivins, uh, Vladimir uh, Pisechnik, and there was another person that you talked about. Uh, right, uh, and that, that would be Frank Olson. And Frank Olson was
1: probably the first dead germ warfare scientist, and uh, like Bruce Ivins, also worked at Fort Detrick. And Frank Olson, like Ivins, was an anthrax specialist, and his uh, specialty was aerosolizing anthrax, making it into a fine powder so it could be breathed into the lungs. Um, Anyway, uh, it turns out Frank Olson was working with uh, a special division at Fort Detrick called um, Special Operations, uh, which is actually a CIA um, division. Uh, that that specialized in using germs in assassination weapons, as well as drugs like LSD uh, for interrogation purposes. This is back in the 50s. And this is back in the 1950s. This goes way back. So it's, we go back 50 years, just after the Second World War, when the U.S. military was investing heavily in uh, germ warfare and actually building huge amounts of germ bombs and, and, uh, and, and the like. Uh, Frank Olson basically um, decided to, to quit his job uh, and uh, was uh, basically uh, invited to come see, a, by, by his colleagues at Fort Detrick, to come see a specialist in New York City. Well, one night just after arriving in New York City, he uh, fell out of the window, 13th floor window to his death, um, on, on a street corner right opposite Madison Square Garden here in New York City and uh, that was in 1953, and uh, for, many, for many years uh, his family did not understand what happened uh, to Frank Olson, but then in post-Watergate um, years, uh, the, some new information came out that, uh, in the Rockefeller Commission that basically detailed a lot of these CIA misdeeds, That it was revealed that Frank Olson had actually uh, died, in an LSD experiment that had gone wrong, he'd been slipped LSD and had uh, fallen out of the window. Um, his family were invited to the White House. They met with President Ford. They were given a big settlement um, and told to go away and never to speak of this again. But the son never believed that story, the LSD story. He thought there was more to it, and it uh, many uh, decades later he actually um, decided to go and have an autopsy, uh, a forensic examination performed on his father's uh, corpse. So he uh, had a leading uh, forens- uh, forensic uh, pathologist uh, exhume the body and examined it, and they found evidence that uh, Frank Olson had been killed with a blow to the head before being thrown out of that window. So this um, legacy of germ scientists, uh, men who... Probably knew too much, who were privy to many very very sensitive state secrets, and who perhaps had a change of heart or decided they wanted out, um, end up dying in very suspicious circumstances.
0: Yeah, and that that's what we get in the film, and we, we you, wonderful interviews with the son Eric, and uh, yeah, so we it's made clear that. It, There's, like, three stories about Frank Olson, and, I mean, there's the thing that he he wanted to get out out of this. He was fed up or he he was disturbed by what they were doing with the germ experiments and the interrogations and mind control type of stuff, and uh, wanted out, and uh, then you said, uh, we we were told originally, the public, that he uh, jumped out of the window, committed suicide. Was that the original story, that he... Uh, basically,
1: it would be an accident that he'd fell out the window. It was never explained, so it was like, you know, he just fell.
0: Yeah, and so then, then later, the cover story that he had taken some LSD, and maybe this was somehow related to all this MK Ultra stuff, and, uh, you know, had fallen out because he was high on LSD, and then, you know, now the son Eric believes, and with the evidence of this uh, exhumation that... Uh, he was actually flat out murdered. There was a blow to the head and then thrown out the window so is that that
1: uh... that, that 's correct i mean that that 's what um, the evidence seems to point at the medical evidence that the forensic pathologist uncovered uh, but again it's uh, been, been very difficult for um, for anything to come of this uh, Eric uh, Olson, uh, son of Frank Olson, has for decades been trying to get. Uh, to the bottom of this and uh, um, has had very uh, little success. Uh, you know, one of the things, you know, about this this world, it, it's very dark, Robert. This is dark stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: this is, you know, p- people, uh, it's scary, it's dark, people don't want to know. Um, and uh, because at the very heart of this is the subversion of uh, the life sciences. You know, science is supposed to be for good, mm-hmm. uh, but this is a subversion of the life sciences to the death sciences. Instead of finding cures for diseases, is how can we make diseases even more dangerous killers, more efficient killers? So, yeah, it, it's it's really really dark stuff in the shadows. And uh, one of the things we decided to uh, re- reasons we decided to make this film and is that we want to shine a bit of a light um, into these shadows. This is something we should all be concerned about. And certainly those anthrax attacks, um, there's been a huge proliferation um, in terms of uh, this secret research that's going on all over the place in a a lab right near you. You know, that university lab down the block? Mm -hmm. Uh, There might very well be some classified uh, germ war research going on. Uh, We don't know. so much of this stuff is secret, um, and uh, as citizens I think we all need to become aware of this, um, not be just scared about it, but uh, demand for more accountability, greater transparency, et cetera.
0: Well, yes, I think we should be alarmed, definitely, and then we need to take action. And that's what uh, you guys are are promoting, and I I, I think that's great. And so we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, This is out the rabbit hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with... Eric Nadler and uh, Bob Cohen, and we're discussing uh, their uh, documentary, Anthrax War, and there's also the book, Anthrax War, and the website is anthraxwar.com, you can go there and get information, there are clips of the film, there is a uh, trailer that we actually played at the beginning of the show here today, and uh, you uh, also have... uh, list of screenings coming up you guys are promoting uh, people having screenings in their um, communities and uh, you've also been nominated for some awards can you, can you go into that a little bit
2: right one of the things we did with this movie is um, you know anyone who wants to show it in a community uh, setting to um, just educate their uh, friends and uh, neighbors relatives etc all they have to do is uh, contact us through the website and you know, we'll make sure you get a copy of the film and do that. And if you're uh, convenient, uh, we can come and speak. Or if you have some money and want to pay for a plane ticket, that's fine, too. Uh, we took this film to um, uh, Manhattan, Kansas, uh, a couple of months back, uh, which is the uh, going to be the site of a new expanded uh, biodefense uh, complex um, that uh, won the support of the entire uh, Kansas congressional delegation and uh, the senator and the uh, mayor. And uh, only a hearty band of um, activists worried about the uh, security at such a place, um, especially in this age of um, terrorism, and uh, knowledgeable about the government's uh, inability to effectively monitor this, um, used this screening as an outreach program. To uh, to 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 initiate discussion about the wisdom of bringing such a facility right near the nation's uh, livestock uh, supply, and uh, this is something that uh, should not uh, be uh, ignored. And uh, we played uh, some festivals, and uh, uh, we uh, basically uh, did this program. This program was funded by uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and by the uh, French and uh, German television networks. It's almost impossible to get uh, production uh, support uh, for this from American media outlets. This is such a hot topic. Um, Unless their in-house guys can do it, they're not really interested in um, freelance operations, independent filmmakers uh, and writers and journalists uh, like us. And uh, since uh, the mainstream media doesn't do it and they don't uh, put on the work of others who don't do it, America's uh, pretty much lagging behind, I think, in uh, this kind of investigative reporting. So more and more, uh, Bob and I uh, get our funding um, from Europe, and the version that aired over there was nominated for a couple of prestigious awards, and we've got a a big um, screening in Europe in uh, French television during the week of 9-11. And uh, so that's going to be a good way to uh, get it going. We're also putting the finishing touches now on an updated version for American uh, release. Uh, In other words, we've just been playing uh, communities and festivals, but we're going to move heavily now to see if we can get at least a a cable sale of this thing. And uh, basically one of the things we're excited about is uh, we were in contact with the family of the legendary uh, Frank Zappa, the musician. Yeah. And uh, Bob can talk about the Zappa at greater length than I can, but uh, the family has agreed to uh, uh, let us use Frank's uh, music, and he wrote Germ War" for the American edition of this film. And we have an amazing film clip of, uh, of uh, Frank on the uh, Tom Snyder show back in 1983 a late-night show, basically predicting this uh, coming uh, germ war scenario. And Frank's son, Dweezel is going to uh, do a, a, a song for the show. So, you know, we're trying to liven up a pretty uh, somber topic, but it, it, it's something that I think uh, will get out there, and um, I think our audience uh, will grow for this.
0: Yeah, so this will be a forthcoming like director's cut that will feature the uh, music of Frank Zappa?
1: Yes. That's right, yeah. It's uh, going to be a director's cut, new soundtrack. It's going to be an updated, there'll uh, be some new information on Ivan's. But we're very excited about um, having the Zappa soundtrack because in many ways, you know, Zappa was an inspiration for this film as somebody who was speaking out about German warfare, who was quest- always questioned authority, um, made us, you know, uh, um, think about things and ne- never bought the official line. Uh, he was a very important influence. But that'll be, so that new version will be coming out in, uh, at the end of the year. But in the meantime, uh, even though this film uh, has not been shown in America, we can't get the show, uh, film shown in America at, right now, um, it is available on our website. People can buy the DVD. Um, you can buy the book on the website, um, www.anthraxwar.com, um, and uh yeah, we were, but we're very excited about the, uh, the new one as well. So you can buy the, the French edition or the European television edition, which is in, uh, in English um, now and later in the year, the new director's cut with the soundtrack by Frank Zappa.
0: And oh, yeah. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Frank Zappa, a brilliant musician and very uh, concerned uh, citizen who, yeah, as you said, predicted some of these things. And So, yeah, the website anthraxwar.com, the film Anthrax War, the untold story of the 2001 anthrax attacks and the dark secrets of the hidden world of modern-day germ war research. Now, uh, do I understand correctly that you had a uh, screening for some uh, congressional staffers?
2: Oh, that's right, and also uh, some members of uh, Congress um, attended as well. Yeah, last um, year uh, we screened it for Congress; got a very good uh, uh, turnout, and the, there were two um, uh, Congress people who came. Uh, one was the Rush Holt, who was who is the sponsor of a uh, bill uh, calling for an independent uh, investigation of the FBI's handling of the uh, anthrax uh, matter. And uh, that's not uh, going uh, forward because the leadership hasn't made it a top priority. And uh, Obama, um, certainly, uh, who never mentioned it, Obama or McCain, never mentioned the anthrax attacks during the presidential campaign. It didn't come up. And they never discussed the issue of uh, germ uh, war. Uh, proliferation of laboratories and uh, expenditures. So there isn't, uh, at the higher levels of the political establishment, a demonstrated desire to uh, uh, really look into um, this matter. Bob and I can uh, continue our journalism. I I can't give you the details right now, but we have a pretty good piece that's going to come out um, uh, in conjunction uh, with ProPublica. And I don't know if you know those guys, but um, they just won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. They're a web-based outfit um, that works with uh, establishment um, uh, mainstream papers as well as do their own thing. And, uh, um, you know, just stay tuned for that one. So the journalism will keep coming. It, it, that journalism might be uh, aimed at uh, Washington uh, guys. We've spoken with them. There's great interest down the hill. So if we can get uh, Congress interested, that's something. If we can get people interested, then Congress gets interested. But it's basically going to be a grass uh, roots uh, effort here. and uh, but uh, it's one that's uh, achievable and worth doing.
0: All right. And anthraxwar.com, if you want to get involved in this, uh, that's you can go to that website and uh, get a copy of the film and uh, support uh, bringing this information to the public and bringing it, uh, making Congress uh, concerned about this. So uh, we, we kind of teased the audience a little bit uh, with uh, Larry Ford when we were talking about the five different uh, people involved in biowarfare research uh, to some extent who uh, died under mysterious circumstances. And uh, Larry Ford is interesting to our audience here in Irvine because, as you mentioned, he actually lived and died just right down the street here within a couple miles of the station here from where we're broadcasting. And uh, he, it just his story is just so bizarre. And so either one of you wants to kind of tell us a little bit about Larry Ford
1: Well, well, maybe some of your listeners will remember. It was back in 2000, and uh, Larry Ford uh, blew his brains out in um, suburban Irvine um, one um, afternoon. And um, little one is known about this guy. I mean, his neighbors thought he was, you know, a doctor, a gynecologist. He had an outfit in in L.A., and he dealt with the stars. I believe Bianca Jagger was one of his clients, and... uh, um, and so was Muriel Hemingway. In any event, this guy blows his brains out. and Well, it turns out that Larry Ford also had a, a business venture in Irvine. He had a, a, um, a business partner that had a pharmaceutical company, and they were involved in coming up with some kind of AIDS um, uh, protection for women. It was a drug that was supposed to protect women uh, from HIV and uh they had been doing some research in South Africa. Well, one day some guy shows up in the parking lot and shoots, tries to assassinate Larry Ford's partner. Uh, the guy was was basically caught, the gunman, and very soon the cops zeroed in on Larry Ford, and they were about to go in and interview him, and the guy shot himself. Well, cops were responding to this uh, this shooting, and they received a call from an FBI informant saying... You don't want to let anybody in that house. There's a germ weapons cache in there. The place is full of germ weapons. Um, Don't let anybody in there. Well, they evacuated the neighborhood, um, I think three blocks around, and they called the hazmat teams, and they went in there. And they discovered um, jars, hundreds of jars and vials of... uh, Substances at the time, they didn't know what the stuff was. They pulled up uh, the floorboards. They found explosives. They found medical records. It was a real treasure trove. Um, some of the local police detectives in Irvine were assigned to the case, and uh, but very, very um, quickly, some they, they got some information that perhaps uh, Larry Ford had CIA connections, and they made a call to uh, to the CIA and. Uh, basically were told to uh, to call back and we called they called back and they were said yeah larry ford is involved with us uh, but very quickly um, the federal authorities took over the investigation and uh, the local police were taken off the case but what they had done was able to find out that this guy had actual connections with south african germ war program during the apartheid years and that larry ford had a double life and was basically assisting the South African germ war program. This is a program that began in the 1980s uh, at the height of apartheid. The South Africans decided they wanted to start a germ warfare program. Um, And one of the specific aims of this program was trying to figure out, um, come up with a a germ weapon that would affect black people only, that would target black people. This uh, would be an ethnic Germ weapon, and uh, the guy who headed that program was a guy called Basson and he went around the world, um, getting information, stealing it, but getting it from friends a lot of the times. Uh, in, in, in in the West, he, he was uh, in in America, in, in in the United Kingdom, he was uh, he was given access, and it turns out that that Larry Ford was a key person. Uh, who worked very closely with the South African Germ War Program. Uh, I traveled down to South Africa and uh, got an interview with Dr. Death, uh, who headed this, this diabolical program that nobody had any idea about until after the fall of apartheid. And he was actually put on trial, Dr. Death, um, and uh, there was a 30-month trial because a lot of evidence had come out Um, after the fall of apartheid during the South African and Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings about what um, the South Africans were really doing. Um, And and Bassan was put on trial, and remarkably he was found not guilty um, at the end of the day. And he's a guy who has not really spoken much about Project Ghost and what he was up to, but he did give us an interview, and in that interview... um, talked about his relationship with Larry Ford and that they had a pretty close relationship and a lot of unanswered questions about exactly what Larry Ford was up to but what is clear is that he was definitely involved with the South African regimes bringing over vials of exotic germs uh um, as claimed by Dr Death
2: in his interview yeah we were able to get we were able to get a hold of Larry Ford's uh, FBI file And uh, page after page was uh, redacted, blacked out under uh, national uh, security grounds. So uh, this guy was definitely more than a a gynecologist uh, to the stars. Uh, Whether we'll ever find out what he was really uh, ultimately up to, uh,
0: who knows. Yeah, but so definitely involved with this uh Walter uh Basson, uh, Dr. Death of South Africa and all in possibly involved with the CIA and uh I have to say um the 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 interview with uh Walter Basson I'm am, am I saying his name right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. D- Dr. Death uh that that was a really uh for me uh, an intense part of the film. I mean, and it had a Sort of surreal quality to it. I mean, did it feel that way, uh, Bob, being right there talking with him?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in, in one way, I, I really part of me knew that I, I had to get him for this film. Getting him to talk was not easy at all. I had to, you know, pursue him for for, for weeks and weeks um, to get him to talk. And right until that last moment um, when when he walked in to the interview, I wasn't sure that he was actually gonna um, you know, show up. I was half expecting him to cancel because this guy is not really talked about this stuff. But, um, when I finally, he was face to face with him, It was pretty incredible because on one level, he's, uh, he's a real sort of well-spoken and, and, and charming in a kind of a sick way. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's a kind of a passive aggressive as well. Uh, a real, uh, a real character. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he was you know he wanted to talk. He's got a huge ego, Dr. Uh, death, and uh, he loves to talk and and loves to to brag as well. And uh, see, I was actually pretty amazed that the interview ran for about three hours, and uh, he told us a lot of very very interesting stuff. Uh, some of the stuff was actually pretty pretty shocking, especially his his attitude that you know he was totally um, unrepentful. Um, And and the amazing thing about Dr. Death is that he's still on the payroll of the South African government to this day. And uh, when he arrived at the interview, he had just finished teaching medical students at the University of Cape Town, where he is a lecturer in cardiology. So pretty amazing that a guy like that is teaching um, future doctors.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, We're just about out of time here, but I do... uh, Feel like I uh, wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't at least bring up uh, Stephen Dresch. Uh, and, and like I said, we don't have a lot of time. If uh, if you could real quickly uh, talk about how he, who he was, and how he was important to this film.
2: Well, Dresch was the guy who was uh, going to be the central character in our film. We found him. He an <laughs> independent investigator. He is a private eye in the true sense of the word. He's uh... no nut job he's a former republican state legislator from michigan uh... that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a nut job but he had done professional work uh... investigations for lloyds of london and uh, basically had pretty good results in the press with organized crime stuff. And he was looking into the private uh, networks and the state networks uh, involved in the uh, anthrax trade. And uh, we met him because uh, as we asked our questions, uh, we were always like w- a few steps behind him. So when we finally met, we said we couldn't believe this guy. He wore a trench coat all the time. He drove a reconverted uh, police uh, cruiser. Uh, he was a chain smoker. And he was uh, brilliant and eccentric and, uh, and a truth seeker. So he was going to be the, uh, the uh, star of our film, and we started uh, with him. Uh, it took us a long time to do this film uh, for a lot of reasons, and in the middle of it his lung uh, cancer caught up with him and uh, Stephen uh, Dresch uh, died. Uh, but the film is dedicated to him because he was a guy who um, just wouldn't take no for an answer. And, you know, the small band of investigative reporters that work like us, or even people who work at the Times and the Washington Post, and the L.A. Times, New York Times, uh, they came to rely upon uh, Dresch as a uh, source, and so it's uh, a guy behind the scenes uh, who uh, oftentimes uh, drives uh, the search for truth. And he would have been the star of our film; it was worth it. Um, but uh, he still gets in the film. We uh, Bob interviewed him on his uh, deathbed. Uh, he wouldn't change a thing. He goes, uh, his famous line we quote to this day is, uh, "Truth is a uh, powerful uh, disinfectant." Uh, worth, uh, seeking and, uh, fighting for, and, uh, it's that kind of spirit, uh, that, um, is missing in, uh, too many investigators today, and so that's why, uh, Steve Dresch was an important fellow for us.
0: Yeah, fascinating, fascinating character, and you all can find out more about him in the film Anthrax War, and there's also the book Anthrax War, um, Bob Cohen, Eric Nadler, thank you so much for spending the time with us today.
1: Our pleasure, Robert. It's been great talking to you, Robert. Thanks.
0: Keep up the good work. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. All right, yes. Bob Cohen and Eric Nadler. And again, that that film is Anthrax War. There's also the book, Anthrax War, Dead Silence, Fear and Terror on the Anthrax Trail. Website, anthraxwar.com. So we're out of time here. Uh, Matt Kaplan is ready to go, as he always is, at uh, 5 uh, p.m. with... uh, Counterspin and Planetary Radio, and uh, I want to remind you once more the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, you can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. This is uh, Robert Larson uh, saying I'll be talking to you next week. It's KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org.